Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluated UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Katie Swindler. Katie is an innovation design strategist and senior manager at Allstate, the insurance company that for more than 85 years has protected Americans from life's uncertainties, of which there are sure a few. At Allstate, Katie is responsible for the design strategy of the innovation department, including hiring, development, and design of the consumer research practice. She is also the bridge between her department and Allstate's internal design, creative, and consumer research teams, which coincidentally was the department that Katie was previously working in. Prior to joining Allstate, Katie was a user experience director at FCB in Chicago, where she was the UX lead for the redesign of the global Jack Daniels website, amongst many other projects. In late 2021, Katie's first book, Life and Death Design, was published by Rosenfeld Media. In the book, Katie takes a deep dive into the human stress response and how everyday designers can learn to help their users think clearly and act safely. And we'll definitely be talking a lot about that today. An experienced and compelling communicator, Katie has been invited to speak at many industry events, including at South by Southwest Interactive multiple times, UX Lisbon, the IXDA's Interaction, and the PUSH Conference in Germany. And now, that's right, she's here with me for a conversation on Brave UX today. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. And I just want to come back to something in your introduction, and this might not be the thing that you might first think of that I might come back to, but Jack Daniels, bit of a whiskey yeah, fan? A bit of a whiskey fan. Yes, I became a whiskey fan while on that account for sure. <laughs> uh, it was, it, I, I'm more of a gin girl myself, but it was a fascinating process. Uh, as part of being on that account, I actually got to go down to the distillery in Lynchburg, Tennessee, where Jack Daniels is made, see the limestone cave where all the water came from, uh, see, you know, every step of the process. I even got to taste the whiskey like before it was filtered, before it went into the barrel and after it went into the barrel. It was a really fascinating to learn all the art and science that goes into the process of making whiskey. And I definitely became a fan by the end, 100%. I had these sort of images of madmen in FCB's offices of of these whiskey decanters with full, full of Jack Daniels. Is that anywhere close to what it was like working on the account? It, it was not too far off. I definitely we they had just launched Jack Honey, the mm -hmm. honey flavored whiskey, at the time when I was on the account, and we definitely had uh, several bottles of that like squirreled away in people's desk drawers. That you know. <laughs> Friday, Friday at four, those would often make an appearance. Yeah, no, agency land, yeah, you have a beer fridge. Like it was, it's a very different culture than a more traditional corporate office situations, you know? Now I'm at Allstate, uh, we, we can't even have alcohol on the premises, you know? It's just a very different <laughs> corporate culture. But it was fun, you know, we were downtown, I was working out of the Hancock building, downtown uh, Chicago, and it was wild. It was, I'm really glad I got a chance to, to do that. 
that in my career. It was a really fun experience. Yeah, I mean, it's a big network agency, right? And it, it, they yeah. do sort of come with their own kind of, I suppose, their, they've got a fun and exciting culture. Every agency that I've been into anyway, they always have a bit of energy to them. But I, I heard you describe your move to Allstate and you framed it up as a move because you felt that you wanted your work to have more impact on the brand and also on the customers or the clients of that brand. I got the sense it was something that you felt from what you said that you weren't getting necessarily at the agency or to the depth to which you were seeking. Are agencies capable of doing lasting and impactful design work? Absolutely, they are. I, I was specifically at a advertising agency that had a UX team. Even while I was there, I saw their practice deepen. There are lots of consultancies and agencies that are UX agencies um, that are embedded in product teams. And especially when you are working in that way, you can have a real impact. Um, and I, I certainly, you know, if I had found a job at a place like that, that probably would have, you know, could have been my next uh, step forward on that path. But I'll tell you, I, I've seen a real trend in bringing these sorts of roles in-house because corporations are realizing that these digital products and these digital experiences are a core part of their business and they want to have full control over it. It's not something that you want outsourced. It's something that you don't want the A team to get ripped off and put on some more exciting, you know, new client business. You want to foster your team. You want to grow them. You want to keep them around for years and years. Um, so you have, you've got anchors that, you know, know the whole history. I'm working at one of my, one of the POs I work with, he has been um, on the same product team for over 15 years. You know, he knows that inside and out. I, I know at least two people within Allstate, uh, one on the UX side, one on the, on the PO side that have been on the same product for over 15 years. And you can't, you can't get that level and depth of expertise uh, from an outside agency. Not to say that there's not value in those outside agencies, sometimes coming in with a fresh perspective, especially if the team is really empowered. Uh, you can do a lot of good in those roles, but uh, you know, there's, I, I think more it's on the corporation side of just realizing how essential it is and, and pulling those in-house because of that. Yeah, it's definitely an observable trend and it's been going on, I mean, I, I would say at least for a decade now, that drift of talent to in-house. I've also heard you talk about the the way in which agencies approach their hiring and the development of their people. And again, I'll paraphrase here. So if I'm putting words in your mouth, please just let me know. But sure. I've, heard, I've heard you describe it in terms of regularly, regularly hiring young people, um, not paying them very well, and then expecting that they'll work all day and night. And I was curious from, from your own experience working in an agency and then having gone in-house, what weight did you place on the, I suppose, the work-life balance or the respect of people's time that agencies don't generally appear to have uh, for their people and what yeah. role that played at all in your decision? Yeah. So it probably wasn't as much of a determining factor as it should have been. I, I kind of lucked out by going to a company like Allstate where work-life balance is so prized and they put such an emphasis on it. They even give trainings on how to maintain good work-life balance and make sure that 
what you're doing is mission driven and, you know, they call it energy for life, that you're managing your energy throughout the day, that you're doing work that gives you energy. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible program and an incredible commitment that Allstate gives. But yeah, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I do have a child. Uh, she's 11 now. And uh, at the time that I was doing agency life, she was, I think, you know, two, three, four around that age. You know, she was in a, a daycare just down the street from me. It's almost easier to do it when they're young because they don't remember much, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 the guilt can wash off. The parental guilt yeah, can wash off. Call you out on it, um, uh, but you know, I am really, I'm really glad that I've I've got a much better, healthier balance uh, for my family now. I also was mid career by the time I was in the agency land, I did not go into that environment at, as an entry-level position. And I knew my worth and I said no in a way that a lot of people in the agency land did not feel that they could. Uh, I coached as much as I could uh, around that, but it also probably would prevent me from going as high as you know, I feel like my skill set would allow me to go in an environment like that because I do maintain boundaries. Um, you know, I was I wasn't working weekends. Every once in a while, I would work late into the evening, but it was a rare thing because I just got my work. You know, I buckled down. I got my work done, and I, you know, I I was strategic about the things that I committed to in in order to make sure I was doing my job and doing my job well, but also being able to be there for my family. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, there's certain systems out there of which I would say an advertising agency is an example of. A hospital is another, which is mm. an environment that my work, my wife works in, where the machine will just continue to eat if you continue to feed it. Yes. And what you described there about having boundaries is so critical to actually achieving impact and having some satisfaction, I feel, at the end of the day when you do get home. And yeah. sounds like you've managed to find that at Allstate, which is really great. Just yeah. before we get on to sort of more um, design-focused conversation, I was curious to ask you about your your journey to design. Now, I understand that um, you are a self-described theatre nerd <laughs> and that you have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Directing and Theatre Management. I also learned that you appeared in over 40 musicals, so this is clearly something that you take quite seriously or you have done in the past and that mm -hmm. up until about a decade ago you were directing on a contract basis for various theatres I believe in Chicago area. Yeah. Have you closed the book on theatre or is this still an active interest of yours? Um, I have taken a, uh, a hiatus. Primarily I couldn't figure out how to do that work full-time and raise a child, uh, especially since theater, especially the sort of storefront theater that I was doing, which is not equity theater, meaning, you know, that I, I would be paid as a union member, that it, it's done on the weekends and evenings, right? And that's the time that I need to be spending with my child and my husband. So, um, the, you know, Essential that, that's- Essential for a happy life, right? Yeah, yeah spend some time exactly. with the family. Yeah. Exactly. So the, that's where I wanted to spend that energy. And so um, I definitely could see, you know, once I'm an empty nester, uh, going back and playing Ursula in The Little Mermaid or uh, Miss Hannigan and Annie, you know, some of those sort of like 
older character female roles that are just so fun. You get to chew the scenery all day long and sing the big belter songs. And those would be a lot of fun uh, to go back and play some of those roles or, or to direct shows. But it's definitely something I probably won't return to until my daughter either gets into theater herself, maybe we do some things together, uh, though she's not really, she doesn't really seem to be going that direction, or until she's uh, off to college in life and doing her own thing. Though, you know, soon after, I don't know, you, you know, you never know what, what life will send you. So, but I definitely haven't closed the book. <laughs> Just oh, that's good. Bookmark Slightly in it open. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. It, it's interesting <laughs> actually learning this about you and hearing you talk about that uh, because there's been a, a number of previous guests. I don't know if you know, Amy Jimenez Marquez and Whitney Quisenberry on the, mm -hmm. on the show. And both of those um, people came from a background uh, or a love, have a love for theater. And I, I imagine it's something that given the nature of theater that served you fairly well in design. Oh, absolutely. You know, the creative process is the creative process and, you know, getting a bunch of people together with varying backgrounds and expertise in order to create something bigger than themselves, create an experience that others go through, right? Like those, that is, I could be describing theater. I could be describing, you know, a, a web experience or, a, or an app, right? Like the, it's, it's the, it's the same sort of group of people. I, I don't like long for the stage right now because of the honestly my itch is being scratched right the that for that that creative process you know I also do quite a bit of speaking which kind of uh, fulfills my my only child extrovert need to be the center of attention. <laughs> and, <laughs> but you know the part of theater that I really always loved was figuring the show out, putting all the pieces together, creating an experience that is transformative and takes people to new places. And uh, we do a lot of that in, in our work, right? Like as, as UX professionals, it, we have to really think and put ourselves in the shoes of other people, think about how they would react, think about motivation. And all of these, that, that was the fun part of the theater work um, back when I was doing it more regularly. And, and I get to do all that fun stuff in my day-to-day -day work. Um, so it's, it, it's definitely not, it doesn't feel like a deficit in my life, but especially, you know, as I become an empty nester or as I retire, I could see going back to theater to sort of uh, fill that role within the creative process again. It's good to know that I'm speaking with another only child. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind as I go through. I yeah. was curious though, there's a couple, there's a couple of areas of tension that I can see and, and I don't mean bad tension, but tension that I can see between um, how you saw your role in theatre and how you appear to see your role in design. You know, you've talked there about, I think, going back and, and, and being, you know, the little mermaid um, and being the actor. Um, but you've also, your degree is in theatre management and directing. Yeah. And when I look at your your current role at Allstate, you've got a what looks like an IC role in terms of strategy, but then you're also being the playing the design manager and the bridge role between the two departments. And my my question that I'm gonna to get to really quickly, I promise, mm -hmm. is what is your favorite role to play? Is it the the dancer on the dance floor or is it the the observer on the balcony? Why not both? Right. Mm. I mean, I am definitely drawn to roles where I don't have to exclusively do one thing. And I really love being a design manager. I know not everybody can say that. Sometimes people move into design because they see it as a way to progress their career. 
Um, but I really love that part of it. I love developing people. I love being part of figuring out the structure and, or, and of a larger organization, figuring out how we create organizations that support designers throughout their career, that grow them and engage them continuously. I love those sorts of problems to solve, but it's also really satisfying to be able to contribute directly to the work. That being said, you know, there's there's many ways to contribute to the work. I, if we're talking like the double diamond, right? Or what, you know, you wanna make sure you're uh, doing the right thing and then doing the thing right, right? You get like sort of the strategy diamond and the execution diamond. I definitely see myself living most happily and, and contributing the most in that first half of the diamond. I don't consider myself a high fidelity designer. Um, you know, I'm not the one that's gonna make your pixel perfect design, though I will certainly, you know, sketch for days, you know, and, and try to try to lay out the, the architecture. But I really enjoy helping people get their designs to the next level. I feel like my background in theater really helped me learn how to give good design feedback, right? Um, in, in theater, they have a saying, don't give line readings, right? So I, okay, so in my freshman year of college, um, I had, you know, I had done all this performing. I love to be on stage, but my freshman year of college, I realized that what professional success looks like for an actor is to do the same show seven times a week. And that just sounded like factory work to me. And the part I always loved about theater was getting the show up, right? Was solving all the problems that you needed to solve in order to get a show on its feet. And so it really made a lot of sense to shift into directing because that was where that was you know, if, if I pursued it professionally, that was the role in which I would get to solve those problems. Um, and I, and I really found a home in, in that, you know, bringing the, the teams together and through, through, you know, training as a director, you get told like, never give a line reading. And, and what that, what that means to those of you who, who don't have the theater background. So if you're giving an actor a note, let's say they're saying a line in a way that's kind of not getting the point across, you don't, you don't ever give them the line reading. A line reading would be like, say the line this way, right? Where you actually say the line that they're supposed to say if they're like, the dog goes to the store, you, the dog goes to the store, right? Like you don't do that, right? You direct them through words to say, you know, what you're trying to convey here is that the, the dog is, you know, not from the store, but rather to the store, right? So that the, then they come to their own conclusion that what they need to do is hit the word too, right? You don't you give them give... like a mini vision, right? Like exactly. You're, you're, not, you're not telling them, you're kind of painting it for them a little bit so they can go to it. Exactly. You talk a lot more about the intention, about the motivation, about what's behind it, and then you let them mm. figure out how to say the words that are coming out of their own mouths, right? Why is that important? Why, why well, should we do this? So it, it, it's the same thing when we're, you know, giving notes in a design critique, right? You mm -hmm. don't say, make the logo bigger. <laughs> you say, I, <laughs> I don't see the logo, right? Because there's lots of ways to fix that problem, you know, or nobody's clicking the contact button. You don't just say, don't make the contact button bigger or make the contact button red. You say the nobody's nobody's clicking the contact button or, you know, we, we don't think people are doing it and let the designer solve the problem, figure out what's the root cause and then, you know, uh, do iterations until they figure out how to solve it. And it, it's just such a, 
a better way to engage your design team. Because if you're giving line readings to your team, they stop thinking for themselves, right? They just do it exact. And then it just sounds like the dog went to the store. They sound robotic, right? And the same thing <laughs> happens in, in a design team. They just do what they're told. They don't think it through. And you look at it and you're like, oh, well, yeah, okay. Well, they made the, they made the, the button bigger, but now it's caused three other problems because you know, they, they weren't really thinking about it. They were just doing what they're told. So I, I think that's probably one of the most valuable skills I, I developed as a directing major um, that I apply as a, as a, uh, you know, a, a design director in, in my everyday roles. Yeah. Don't give line readings. Yes. There's a, a sense of proximity that I get that's important to you, like a, a certain closeness, not necessarily needing to be the person pushing the pixels on the screen yourself, but there's a certain proximity to the work that you certainly convey as important to you. Any ambitions to be VP or eventually in the C-suite in terms of a design role that you hold? Yeah, I I would love to run a larger design team before the end of my career, mostly because I've developed all of these opinions about how to develop talent um, and I would like a chance to execute it, but that's a design challenge too, right? Like that it's, a, it's design ops basically, right? The designing the design organization, there's a book on that, uh, that I think I, I badly paraphrased the title of there, but it, you know, that, that is a whole uh, challenge of itself that I, I find extremely appealing and that I think doesn't always get like people sometimes fall into things backwards or they get promoted up until they're out of their range of, you know, uh, what they're actually comfortable doing. And, you know, I think if we can be mindful and uh, purposeful in how that we're approaching some of these challenges, um, I think we can do good, not just for whatever company that we're working for, but for the industry as a whole. I, you know, I constantly am seeing things on Twitter and LinkedIn where people are talking about this chronic problem of people posting junior design roles that require five years of experience. And, and they're called entry-level roles. And, you know, we are creating our own problem here, right? And especially when we think about um, how do we increase the diversity within our field? How do we ensure that uh, the design teams that we are building reflect the diverse and varied people that we are designing for? How do you develop that talent, right? Especially for groups that have been chronically pushed out of a job market. And you've got to create those opportunities and take responsibility for, for doing so. So, you know, those are, those are the sorts of interesting design challenges that in a way I still feel like an individual contributor, you know, if I would be, you know, get a chance to, to sink uh, my teeth into a design problem like that. Those are the sorts of things that I find really appealing uh, about moving further up a career ladder. Just touching on that notion of diversity there and mm -hmm. the way in which we recruit. I mean, if we have a, um, a barrier of five years experience for a junior role, mm -hmm. then really we're only able to recruit people that entered the field five years ago, mm -hmm. which by definition is going to be less diverse than it currently could be in the current moment. So I think that is a huge problem and it would be great to have more people actively working on that. I just want to come to the book now, Life yeah. and Death Design. 
Okay, so that's a fairly heavy topic. When I when I saw the title of this book, I was immediately captivated by the subject matter that you were tackling there. And it seemed to me also that this is a another way that you're expressing yourself in terms of trying to deepen the meaningfulness and the impact of the work that you're having in the design community. Where does the search for depth come from within you, if that's the right way to characterize it? Oh, wow. Oh, that's a deep question. I mean, where does it come from? Don't we all want to save the world? I don't know. Maybe I, I grew up reading, you know, too much Tolkien. But, you know, I've always been a fan of the, uh, what is it called? The heroic arc, right? Where, you know, you're you're just trying to do what's right. And I am also an eternal optimist and have seen the power of optimism over and over to tackle big problems. Also something that I feel an immense responsibility for looking at the enormous amount of privilege that I have in my own life, right? I have been given so many blessings and it calls to me to return those blessings in the form of doing good in this world as much as I possibly can before I kick it, right? So, and I, I don't think that, it, you know, there's one way to make the world a better place. And I think that, you know, I have to be aware of my own, what is that called? Heroic complex, hero complex, right? Like it's something that I'm constantly watching and kind of keeping an eye on because uh, that can lead you to bad places as well. Um, but I think, you know, wrangled and, 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 and watched, I, I think it can be a force for good and the world needs some right now, right? Like we need people who are, who are, who are willing to, to sort of stepped up and, and do the work. And that's something I'm very interested in doing. And I didn't know that, you know, my, the, the things that I had, you know, did designing jackdaniels.com. It's cool. It looks great on my resume, but has it prepared me to make the world a better place? I don't know that it did. Right. So I wanted to be prepared to actually do good in my work, to learn the things so that, you know, even that my outcomes can match my intentions. And so, you know, the, the writing the book is a byproduct of the research I needed to do in order to get myself where I wanted to be. Um, it was a way to organize my thoughts, build upon them, put everything I had learned in my 15 year career to work, to interpret, you know, the, the different things that I had researched around the human stress response, uh, about all the amazing design work that is done in high stakes, high stakes, high, high stress fields like aviation and healthcare. There's amazing work being done by amazing designers who are changing the freaking world. And, you know, I just wanted to capture that and write it down and figure out how I can learn from it and how I can help others learn from it. Because I, I don't know, I, I just kind of feel like that's our responsibility as, as designers, right? It's just, just to kind of keep, keep putting it down, keep passing it on and, and sharing what we learn as we learn it. Mm. And it's quite a substantial topic. You know, we will get into it. We will get into this at depth, you know, in terms of looking at life and death design, because there's a lot in there and you've learned a lot of things and you're helping to uh, raise awareness of this amongst the design community and the ways in which everyday designers can build this into their practice. But writing a book about like, there's one thing to write a blog post. It's another thing to write a book. <laughs> and often authors, the ones that I've spoken to anyway, there's a lot of resistance, internal resistance they face in that journey of going from a germ of an idea through to getting something published. Were there any moments while you were writing this book that you just 
found yourself staring at the screen, wondering what on earth you were doing? Um, I didn't even get to the screen some days, right? For me, once I was at the screen that I had crossed the biggest barrier for myself. For me, it was getting to the computer, right? It was all the things that I would do and say were more important in that moment, you know, up to and including, oh, I just need to relax. It's important that I rest, you know, which <laughs> is true. Voice. Yeah, it's true. The, but... the, the all-state work-life balance voice coming through. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, in all things moderation, including rest. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, luckily I have an amazingly supportive family and that support sometimes came in the, in the, in the, in the way of tough love, Get, go do it, you know, pushing me out of bed, doing, doing what I needed to do, or really just, you know, showing up with love. My husband was so amazingly supportive, just picking up whatever needed to be done to make sure that I didn't have an excuse to not write, and, you know, when he's doing so much, you know, to make, to make space for that, that really helped me. Uh, get off my duff and uh, get the work done. Um, you know, it also is incredibly important to have accountability. The amazing uh, team at Rosenfeld, Lou and Marta especially, uh, really helped keep me on track. Um, Marta was my managing editor and she, you know, was continually uh, supportive and telling me what a great job I was doing. But she also, you know, there were also deadlines and I knew I would have to answer to Marta if I missed any. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, I wrote this during the pandemic, right? Like the first month that I was set to sit down and write the book, I had signed a contract in January that said I would start writing the book in March, 2020. <laughs> and we all know what happened in March, 2020. And so, you know, those first six months, everybody was just kind of running on adrenaline, right? Um, I really, I, I read some articles around the six month mark, around the six month slump and, and how it's actually very common for people um, in wars and other long-term um, stressful situations to that six month mark is a very uh, regular time for people to just hit walls. And it makes sense, right? Like our bodies give us the boost of energy for emergency situations by stealing it from other places. Um, but it, it can only do that for so long, right? Um, and even in, in a chronic stress situation, you're just gonna run up against times when your body's just like, no, nah, I'm just done. And I definitely felt that I lost a dear friend and mentor, Pradeep Nair, who is a, just a powerhouse in the UX uh, scene in Chicago. Um, my book is actually dedicated to him because, you know, he was such an influential and wonderful impact on my life. And uh, we lost him, uh, I think, in June or August of that year and uh, June or July of that year. And so by August, I just was out of juice. I was just done. And my editorial team was wonderful about letting me just take a few months off. I also, you know, my family was struggling with, with, especially my daughter was struggling with, with everything to do with the pandemic. And, you know, I needed to focus on her and be there for her and help her through that. So uh, they were wonderfully supportive about allowing me to take some time, but also gave me the push I needed to say like, you know, by but when I said, okay, I'm going to come back in and it was like October, November or something. I was like, okay, I'm going to restart, you know, by this date. And when that came, you know, it was, it took a little doing, but you know, it was like, well, okay, you can take more time, but then I'm not sure if the book will happen. Right. And that's sometimes you need, you need that, you know, you need de real deadlines and you need those deadlines to be real sometimes. Um, in order to do it. So they were, they gave me just enough, <laughs> you know, just enough space and just enough push. It was really a, a, just what I needed to, to get the book out. And, and they were, they were a wonderful support team for me. 
It sounds like they gave you that space, like you said, uh, when you were experiencing that chronic stress, but then you had to acutely press your stress response <laughs> in order to kickstart the book back up again, which right. which I, I suppose is a, is a brilliant perspective that Rosenfeld was able to bring to what was going on for you and what was best in terms of that creative outcome, which has been the book. Yeah. Now, I just want to c- come to some of the specifics now sort of within this uh, design area of life and death design. And I'm just going to quote you. Now, you've said, to get the most out of human performance, we have to build systems that accentuate our strengths and shore up our weaknesses. And you've got a great story that I believe illustrates this fairly well, and that's about the NASA astronauts and the suits that they first came to wear. What is the story of those suits? Yeah, so it's it's one of my favorite stories, and I I... I have it in my talk, but I don't actually know that it's in the book. But uh, yeah, so at the beginning of the space race uh, for to to get to the moon, um, there were two different suit designs that were being considered by NASA. Um, there was this hard suit design and a soft suit design, in which the soft suit, of course, is the sort of uh, Michelin man, the, the, you know, the marshmallow suit that we're all so familiar with, but they had this hard suit and it was actually the hard suit that the engineers were really excited about and they wanted to build. Um, but when they tested the hard suit, the astronauts were incredibly clumsy. They were, they, when they were doing test runs in zero G, uh, simulated zero G using airplanes, the astronauts would often fall on their back and uh, like couldn't get up and they were like stuck there like a turtle. Um, and so they were really afraid that if they sent these guys to the moon, they would li- literally get stuck there. Um, <laughs> so, can you imagine Neil Armstrong lying on his back on the moon? We, but still there. You can actually find video footage of these suits being tested and it's quite hilarious. I'm not going to lie. It's in your talk. Yeah. I, I will I have to link to it in the show notes. It's quite, it is quite hilarious it's really, watching. Them. It's really funny. And so, you know, the other suit design uh, was being put forward by a company called International Latex Corporation. There's a fascinating book that I got all this from called Fashioning Apollo. And it was all about the spacesuit uh, design process, which if you really want to nerd out for like you know, 20 odd chapters on spacesuit design, that, that's that, that's your money right there. So <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to send that to actually, I don't know if you know Bob Baxley, but I'll have to send that to Bob because Bob's a big <laughs> fan of NASA and the space program. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a good one and lots of great pictures and everything. Anyway, so International Latex Corporation, they're the ones who are putting forward the soft suit designs. And they made this amazing video showing one of their engineers wearing the suit and playing American football while wearing the suit, you know, as opposed, you know, put it put juxtaposed to, you know, the turtle suit <laughs> the, the other guys are wearing. And it was such a hit. I mean, it was pure propaganda. It's not like it was in a laboratory setting or anything like that, but it was so, it was such an effective piece of video and propaganda that they they handily won the contract from NASA. And what they actually ended up doing, so International Latex Corporation was a spin-off of another company, which is a much more well-known home, home brand name, Playtex, the women's bra and girdle manufacturer. And so what they actually ended up doing is pulling the women who made the bras and girdles, they pulled them off the production line to sew the Apollo suits because those were the women who had the expertise necessary. They knew the human body. They knew how to design and build clothing for the human body 
curves and all. And, it, you know, those suits, they they played well with the strengths of humanity, right? They they kept us safe. They kept all the, all the pressure in, in, our, in our enclosed space, but they allowed us to move. They allowed the human body to move. It allowed it to, to the dexterity necessary. You know, we've evolved over millions of years to have fingers and arms and they, they work in a certain way. And those suits gave just enough protection um, but still allowed for that flexibility and responsiveness that really makes the the human creature unique. So yeah, I I, I love that story, and I and I, and I love that it was bra makers that actually sewed those uh, Apollo suits. I think that's a that's a fabulous little factoid. And what is the what is the main lesson in here for everyday designers when we think about what we're doing? Yeah, I you know it was really brought home to me when I spoke with a woman who designs for analysts, intelligence analysts. She may or may not work for the CIA. She told me, you know, one of the most important things to do is to assign the work to the computers that the computers are good at and assign the work to the humans that the humans are good at, right? Um, and to understand where are the biases that need to be checked by a system, but where are the intuitions and the pattern seeking that uh, is unique to a human to be able to draw certain conclusions and make in those necessary intuitive leaps when you're working with incomplete and often you know rocky data sets, right? You need sometimes you need that human intuition to fill in the gaps, and the computers can't can't do that still. Um, so you know whenever we're creating systems, whether it's a physical object or a spacesuit or or a data display on a monitor, we have to think about are we giving the are we giving the right work to the human and are we giving the right work to the system? Um, because when we understand that, we understand the strengths of each, then we can, we can really build powerful systems that, that point everything in the right direction and, and get the best outcomes for everyone. I really like that lens. It's a simple lens to place upon a design challenge, just that question or those, that, those two questions that you can ask yourself. And I, I also just want to come to something else that you've said, which I believe this may relate to, and I'll quote you again. You've said, if a stressed person can use your product, anyone can. And where this, where this, where I got to with this anyway, is this made me think of something one of my previous guests on the podcast, Surya Vanka, had said, and he'd said, when we design for extreme cases, we actually end up serving everybody. There is no such thing as a normal human. And we were talking in that context about inclusive design. Mm -hmm. You know, am I seeing something that isn't there, a, a link between life and death design and inclusive design? Oh, 100%. It's, it's all linked because in some ways... When you're designing for life and death situations or high stress situations, you're designing for the human stress response, we are still unpredictable creatures, right? There, there are some things that we can predict better when we understand the human stress response, but there's still a wide range of things that can happen. Um, and having a, a clear understanding of what that range includes allows us to, to capture the most people and sort of funnel them back to the most desirable path, the path that's going to be the best possible outcome for that that human because our instincts don't align very well with modern life. Um, so many of the things that we build require us to think logically in the moment or to read or to, you know, like there's so many skills that or, or to click tiny buttons, right? Uh, to type. Um, these things get incredibly difficult to do when we are in 
a panicked mindset or even a, a high stress mindset because our stress responses have evolved to help us with gross motor improvements, not fine motor improvements. Um, they, they have evolved to help us think fast and intuitively, not clearly and logically, <laughs> you know? So, so all of the things that the modern world is built to take advantage of, all of our human, you know, uh, evolution, our prefrontal cortex, our logic and reason, our uh, amazing fingers and hands. Like we, we have incredible um, power in our fingers. But all of that, when I, you know, I mentioned earlier, when, when we're stressed, our body pulls energy from one place and puts it into another. And it, it our fight or flight response, it's, it's super powering our arms and our legs for running and punching, but it pulls that energy from our fingers. It pulls that energy. The blood actually flows differently in our brains and bodies. And it, and it, it pulls back from our fingers. And that's why we get cold, clammy, um, stiff fingers when we're under stress. The exact same thing is happening on our brains. The the blood literally moves away from our prefrontal cortex and, and into the core center of our brains where things like our hippocampus and our experiential memories are located. That's, that's basically the center and the home of our intuition. So our intuition gets that megaphone effect. And it's just like, what's the first thought that comes into my head? Fast, fast, fast decision making. And it's really hard, the more stressed we get to remember things that like, we learned by reading a book or in a classroom setting, like all of that is is learned very differently than things that we've learned more intuitively and through experiences. So we just really fall back on a, on a completely different skill set, and it and it, it's not necessarily what the modern world is designed for. If if we're not careful uh, about how we design. So it sounds like stress is, well, it can enable other things like some of those less fine motor movements. It disables certain other areas of us in terms of our physical self, but also of some of the higher functions that we could otherwise use if we weren't stressed to process and understand what it is that we're looking at or trying to experience. Yeah. Daniel Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He's an award-winning mm. economist um, who's made his life's work studying bias, human bias. And he has a whole thing framework in his his book um, about system one and system two. And system one is that fast intuitive system and system two is the more slower uh, logical thinking system. Um, system one, I, like I, I, the human brain is very efficient, which means we always fall back to the system that takes the least amount of effort. And that system one is very fast and efficient. You literally burn more calories when you think hard about something, when you engage that system two and you start, you know, like thinking, thinking hard and like doing math. That's where all your analysis lies. That system one can't do math. It can instantly tell you, is this string longer than that string? Right. But the second you say, okay, how much longer you have to engage system two. And because the system one can't do that, it, it can't analyze it. It just uh, compares and categorizes and, and uh, puts things into, into categories and associations. Whereas if you want like an actual measurement or a number, you've got to flip over to that, that system too. And so, yeah, we're, we're programmed to be as efficient as possible. And so we're, our brains are lazy and we rely on that system one as a fallback as, as often as we can. And we rely on it, especially uh, when we need to make fast decisions in an emergency situation or when we're stressed. You've written about the human stress response and how we can, I wouldn't say interrupt it, but design for mm -hmm. it. And there are four 
main ways that we can mitigate that. What are those four main ways? Yeah, so I think of it as the, the first thing I always try to do is like think about can we harness it, right? Like uh, an adrenaline rush is a really powerful force of nature. Like can we can we take advantage of that? And sometimes the answer is yes. You know, um, when you're making more intuitive uh, decisions, sometimes that's exactly the right thing, especially if you've got an expert who's well trained in their area. Just, making sure that they can respond as fast as possible. So harnessing it is, is that first one. Uh, the second is obviously reducing, you said interrupting, I think that's fair, uh, avoiding it altogether, right? Can we eliminate something, you know, just not even pop an air message, right? Can we do air prevention instead, right? Can we, you know, sidestep around, around it? And then the third would be protect. So uh, oftentimes when the human stress, you know, somebody's got that fight or flight response, and, and especially if they're all the way to panic, a lot of times all you can really do in that moment is, is protect them, put up guardrails, uh, do full system takeovers, and, and, and get them as quickly as possible back to a state where they can, where they can engage uh, their, their, their logic and reason and, and, and help them. Um, and then the, the fourth and final is thinking about calming. Uh, to, you know, in most situations, the actual pure moment of an emergency, right? Like something falls on somebody else, right? Like that isn't something that an app or a designed system can often help with, right? Unless you're building the building, right? So oftentimes people are turning into technologies in the wake of a terrible thing, right? Like you had a car crash. Well, what do you do after your car crash? Well, you pick up your phone and you call your boss and tell them you're going to be late for work. You call the police and tell them, you know, to come out. You call your insurance company. You call a tow truck. You call, you know, you you call a car rental agency or you get online and you use the apps or whatever it is, you know, that to, to handle all these things. So it's really technology. There's usually a huge rush to use technology in the wake of a, of a, of a high stress experience or an emergency. And so a lot of times you want to think as a designer, you want to think about how can I make that experience as calm as possible so that we can get people back to thinking rationally and, and uh, you know, not rushing through decision making, help them. It's really hard to think about complex things when you're stressed and sometimes, you know, dealing with the fallout of an emergency, you, you actually need, need to deal with complexity. So calming people down, creating aesthetics or giving them human support is also a really big way that you can calm people down. You know, those are those are definitely ways that, uh, you know, somebody can calm calm somebody in after an emergency. This was one of the light bulb moments for me when I was preparing for today's conversation was exactly what you've been talking about, where you were describing the power that we have in that moment to prioritize when or where human support is available. And I actually ended up sending this to a client of mine who's a, a New Zealand bank, the design team there, because um, it was so relevant to one of the journeys that I just helped them to evaluate at a prototype stage. And you, you basically said that there are two, two sort of main areas where you can think about this. One is where a mistake will cost the person or I suppose and or mm -hmm. the business a lot mm -hmm. of money. And the other is where it's a low confidence activity where someone might be coming to this for the first time or might be feeling outside of their depth. And it was just such a, like I said, a light, real light bulb moment. It was such a, a pleasure to receive as part of preparing for today. I just want to come back up to this notion of calming, though, because you, in your um, talk that I had watched, gave a really 
which I thought was a fascinating example and so relevant given the pandemic that we've all lived through of how other humans have a, and this is why we're talking about human support here and where this is engaged, other humans can have a hugely calming effect after a stressful experience. And you actually used a, a story which uh, unfortunately comes back to that awful day of September 11th in 2001 of how this played out for people who seemingly were under a lot of pressure, clearly, but actually behaved in ways that didn't really make sense. But when you zoom out, you can understand why they were doing it. What was going on for people on September 11th near ground zero and how was this playing out for them? Yeah. So, you know, prior to 9-11 and a lot of the research that was done in the wake of, of how people moved around after that event, sociologists and scientists, you know, if they were going to sit down and model how the city would move, how people would move throughout the city, that there was this general accepted wisdom that people would just run straight away from ground zero, right? They would just see a bomb explode or, you know, whatever happened, and they would just run out straight away as fast as they possibly could. But that, in fact, is not what they found when they were actually looking at how people actually behaved in, in the wake of that event. Much more what they saw is that people did run, but they didn't necessarily run away as much as they ran toward people that they cared about. So parents would run to get their kids from school, even if that meant going closer to ground zero. If somebody was lying bleeding on the ground, somebody would move forward and to help them and pull them back away from safety. And, you know, there's all sorts of stories about coworkers gathering everybody and making sure everybody was together before exiting the building as a group. And, you know, once they started looking for this, this is, this is human behavior that is seen in literally every culture around the world, right? This is some really basic human, humans being humaning, you know, humans humaning, uh, like, because it, it happens in floods and fires and hurricanes and, you know, literally and in every wars. culture. Yeah, yeah, wars, exactly. I'm sure we're seeing this in Ukraine currently. A hundred percent. You know, people just want to be with their families. They want to be with, I think the sociologists call them attachment figures, right? So for soldiers, that might be the other soldiers in their unit. And being with people in times of high stress has a very protective effect on our brains. And if when they study people who have gone through traumatic experiences, there are significantly lower rates and less severe rates of PTSD. And let's say soldiers who uh, experience something with their unit as opposed to alone, right? When they, when they experience something all by themselves that's traumatic, much higher rates of, of PTSD than if they are, are with their fellow, fellow soldiers in that, in that time of trauma. Yeah, it is one of those areas of humanity that unfortunately we see the best of us come come out mm -hmm. at the worst of worst of times, mm -hmm. and I think it's a, it's a re it's a really nice reminder uh, for people because we are still going through this pandemic, and there are many things going on in the world that Ukraine is only one example of mm -hmm. at the moment. So don't forget the I suppose the calming effect that human connection mm -hmm. can have. If there's someone that needs a phone call, then don't wait, give them a phone call, hop on a Zoom and have a chat with them. There's another story that I want to come to, and I, I want to come to this not because of its, um, it's, I wouldn't say it's provocative, but it's definitely an emotive story, uh, but it illustrates really well 
just the practical effect that design of everyday items can have on someone who's in an extremely stressful situation. And this is coming back up to this uh, ability for designers to help people to harness the stress response or not, as it would be in this particular example. And I understand that this the story came to be because you were having a conversation with one of your colleagues, Daniela, at mm-hmm. Allstate about big red emergency buttons and why they're designed the way they're designed. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll let you go into this where you'd like, whether or not you want to touch on big red buttons or you just want to get into the story. But what was it that Daniela could relate to when you were talking about big red emergency buttons? Yeah, so I, you know, I was... I, a lot of what I do in my book is I look at the emergency design systems and what works about them to really dissect why they work, right? Emergency buttons work because they are big. They protrude up off the panel and they are made to be slapped like you're on a game show. It, they are not something that you press with the top of your forefinger, right? Like that that's not that's not how you execute a, an emergency button. You, you slap it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the research shows like why that works. And it's, you know, we talked about it, the, you know, the fingers get clumsy in, in those times of stress and because it's borrowing power to, to, to power those, those other parts of those, those gross motor movements. And so I was sharing this research with Danielle and saying, oh, it's so crazy that like, it gets hard to press tiny buttons, right? Like we are, you know, we're designers of, you know, things that are used on phones or, you know, with keyboards, but, I, like we we're constrained to designing within these things, but all the research says like these things get incredibly difficult to use when the, the more stressed out people get. Um, and she was like, "Yes, I know exactly what you were talking about." And she told me she had been home one day with her two sons. It was it was just them at the house at that time. It was a nice summer day. She was upstairs cleaning and her little four-year-old son was just following her around from room to room, like boys who love their mothers do. And uh, she had left the bedroom for just a second to get something. And when she came back in, the screen was no longer in the open window. And she said, I knew exactly what had happened. And she goes over to the window and she looks down and her four-year-old is lying still on the pavement below. So she starts yelling his name. She runs down the stairs. She goes through the kitchen. She grabs the cordless phone on her way out and she goes to his side and he is breathing, but he is otherwise not responding to her. And I mean, she is losing her mind, right? And she looks down at the phone in her hand and her fingers are so stiff. She can barely hold it. And she looks at the phone and I I will never forget this. She said, Katie, I couldn't find the nine. Like she couldn't even see it. And uh, luckily her older son uh, had heard her yelling. And so he came over to find out what was wrong. And she holds out the phone to him and she says, you have to do it. You have to call 911. So it was her eight-year-old son who called the ambulance and saved his brother's life that day. Now, I always like to reassure everybody, the kid is fine. <laughs> he spent a couple of days in the hospital, but it was a full recovery. And it, that was actually, gosh, like 12 years ago now. And there's there's definitely no lasting damage. The kid had a full recovery, but that story is just so powerful to me to just demonstrate how very differently our brains work and how much we lose in 
in, in the skills that we rely on. When I say, you know, like it's, it, it, the modern world is not designed for us in those moments, that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like a, a designer who picked the font or, you know, laid out those buttons, they are not thinking of a use case of somebody who is so panicked, they literally can't read characters anymore. That is, an, you know, it's so extreme. So, you know, there are new designs that are being uh, tested for doing be this better, right? Um, if anybody has an iPhone, you can actually p push the biggest button, depending on which iPhone you have. You know, if you've got still got an iPhone with a button at the bottom, you can push that one. Uh, otherwise, it's the big button on the side. And if you push it rapidly five times, um, it'll make this whoop sound. And within three seconds, if you don't stop, if you don't stop it from there, it will call 911 on your behalf and connect you to emergency services, you know, and then there's, uh, I just want to just, yeah. I'm so glad you brought this up because yeah. this was something I was going to touch on as well. And if you are outside of the United States, it does work as well. Uh, at least it does work in New Zealand here. Mm -hmm. I actually tried this after you enlightened me about this yeah. feature. I had no idea no idea that it exists and i think that's um, part of the part of the issue i suppose yes. with the device is that it's a great feature yeah. it's so useful in this situation yeah but not very many people know that it exists and and that's the biggest problem with it you know one thing that the emergency the emergency stop button right that big red button has going for it is it is standardized that is the same in every country that you go to and in fact you, as a designer if you are designing for a global audience you can count on the color red having a strong association with stop and you can thank the emergency stop button for that it's because it is in in basically Basically, if a country has factories, then that culture has an association that red means stop. And it's or trains, any train carriage you're in, it's yeah. available generally yeah. to any member of the public to press if they feel they need to. Yeah. So that, that standardization is what makes it work, right? And the lack of standardization between mobile devices... Um, even in the iPhone, I was just trying to explain how it worked and there's differences in it, right? So in order for this to really be an intuitive pattern, you have to have consistency and repetition. And so, you know, that that's something that the the device makers, the, the, the manufacturers are going to, if, if they ever want to really solve the problem, they're going to have to work together to standardize it across all mobile devices and have... Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even I, I looked into this, I don't use Android device, but I, I looked at it, yeah. looked at it just out of curiosity. Android is a minefield. It is impossible to understand like how you would ever educate a populace about how to do this because yeah. every device type has a different way in which it happens yeah. at least with apple i suppose there's some like somewhat a step closer to universality as to how it actually is engaged but android is a, is a, just a mess and what i always tell people is you know no matter what phone you have because android has apps that you can download and install that will give you a very similar feature whatever phone that you have i always tell people to practice it you know, usually you can you can trigger it and then you have like three seconds to prevent it from actually calling the emergency services. Um, but to practice it because it's it's actually getting it into your muscle memory that allows you to remember it 
in the moment that you actually need it. it. Just hearing about it, it really doesn't get logged into the right part of your brain. Like, you know, that's getting only into your prefrontal cortex and not into your, your hippocampus and your, and your experiential memory. So actually do it a couple of times just to get that muscle memory going so that if you are someplace where you need it. And I actually, I, I witnessed a, a car accident uh, about a year ago after I had you know, sort of written that part of the book and, and had, had rehearsed it. And I remember like, I remember being like, oh, I can, like, I know what to do. You know, like there was like no question. And I, and I used the feature and I remember thinking like, oh, this is actually really easy to perform because like my hand is shaking already, you know? And so like just rapidly clicking a button was, it was really easy to do in that moment because I had practiced it. I knew exactly what I needed to do and my hand kind of already wanted to do that anyway. So, you know, I was, I was happy to have that knowledge, but you do, it, it, it requires an immense education campaign, you know, on, on the part of civil service. And it requires a lot of cooperation amongst all these different manufacturers and carriers. It's something that as we are entering autonomous vehicle design and more and more self-driving features are getting added to vehicles, it is definitely something that for, for public safety, we need to be thinking about. I mean, think about, you know, 10, 15 years in the future where you've got multiple autonomous cab companies and each cab company has an emergency stop someplace in the vehicle. Some of them are a big red stop button. Some of them are, are you know, located discreetly in the ceiling. Some of them, you know, are in the door. And it's the sort of thing that if we don't, as a design community, we don't come together and standardize these critical safety features early, then you know we we are at risk of creating kind of a dystopian future where, yeah, sure, the emergency button exists someplace in the vehicle, but you're never going to be able to get to it in the three seconds you have to prevent you know, an accident. So, you know, thinking about design associations and, and cooperative design, it, I often think that we need to think about a lot of this stuff the same way that the scientific community does, right? Yes, there's IP and, and we need to protect some of our designs um, in order to, to protect the businesses that we work for, but there are certain public safety uh, moments where we need to work collectively uh, across the industry with our competitors in order to create a, a truly safe uh, experience for our customers. Yeah, and if you if you've ever hopped into a, a vehicle like a European vehicle versus say a Japanese vehicle, mm -hmm. you'll realize that even on very simple systems within the car, if they're reversed, like in the case of the windscreen wipers and the indicators, oh, they're on different. They sit on different sides. Yeah, and I mean that's clearly not a life or death system. It doesn't really matter if you indicate when you spoke when when you meant to um, turn the windscreen wipers on. Uh, but when you're talking about something as um, as essential as uh, the ability to stop a moving vehicle if it's heading to crash into somebody else, then yes, I completely agree. There shouldn't really be any room for higher functions to kick in at that point. You just want the instinct to play out and for people to know where it is. Now, you touched on an example there when you'd witnessed that car crash and you were able to, well, come to suppress, uh, which is one of the areas you looked at with the human res stress response in terms of engaging the iPhone feature at that moment. Mm -hmm. now, I understand that there is also a really great example that you've given in the past of heart attacks and the way in which people train, because training is one of those things that helps us, like you trained with your iPhone feature, helps us to rise above the stress response in the moment. But that when it comes to heart attacks, um, there is a certain type of training that is delivered that doesn't necessarily prepare 
people for all the types of situations they might encounter. Yeah. So there was a study done, um, I want to say like four or five years ago, that showed that women are significantly less likely to receive CPR from a bystander. And, you know, if a, if a man falls to the ground, showing all the classic symptoms of a heart attack, you know, about 40 some percent of the time, somebody will step forward and give that, that man CPR. And, but if you look at the, you know, public records, they determined that, you know, it was just 30 some percent of the time that women would receive the same CPR from a bystander. And then when they started looking into what are the root causes of this, part of it is uh, there's a belief that women don't have heart attacks, only men have heart attacks, right? Like, <laughs> and then there's uh, some of it is a fear of hurting a woman, um, but a large uh, uh, percentage of it was attributed to the fact that in order to properly administer CPR to a woman, you are supposed to rip open her shirt and put your hand directly over her left breast. And this was seen, people are afraid to be seen to be doing something inappropriate. Speaking of something inappropriate. <laughs> We've had the dog make an appearance. Dog. That was my dog. I don't know if you can see him. That's Mr. Rocket. Is it time for you to go outside? So Mr. Rocket. All right. <laughs> this this process again comes back to training and or at least social conditioning. You know, this isn't something we're not taught when there's a woman in distress that the right thing to do is to rip their top <laughs> off and, and apply CPR in that way. You know, there's a social discomfort about doing that and a, I suppose a fear of potential repercussions as a result of that. But clearly, when it's in a situation like this, it's essential yeah. that we are able to override uh, that conditioning yeah. of what's appropriate and actually perform the necessary aid that that person is in need of. Yeah. And I mean, CPR training is very specific and it, it's always hands-on training, right? Like you, you, you don't get CPR training by reading a pamphlet and filling out a test, right? CPR training is always in person and it's always hands-on. Usually you're using some sort of mannequin or dummy to, to perform this on. And so, uh, and that's because it gets the lessons learned in that experiential memory so that when you're in a panicked situation, you remember what the right thing to do is. And so, yeah, you, you have to address the problem at the point of training, right? Like when you're telling somebody, this is what you do in this situation, uh, in order to address that particular bias, I'll call it a bias, right? Um, in order to address that particular bias, you need to do it just as you do any kind of training through repetition and hands-on experience. And so there was actually a group called uh, the United State of Women who worked with a creative agency called Joan, and they came up with this fabulous product. They called it Womanikin, and it was just this low-cost wrap that had boobs built into it that they put onto the CPR dummy to give the CPR dummy boobs. And, and it's so that people can practice in the classroom setting, be able to ask questions, right? It's going to prompt to the conversation so that they can think it through in the moment and know what to do. They can practice doing it and know that that is actually the right thing to do um, so that they can be prepared for that moment, just as I was prepared to use my phone in a, in a new way, right? Um, I had the muscle memory. They'll have the muscle memory. They'll know it's the right thing to do. And, you know, that, that sort of approach to addressing bias, I think is a fascinating uh, window into, because there's lots of different types of bias that we as a society are trying to address right now, right? There's, you know, every- Train ourselves out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so to, to know that one of the best ways to address bias and to create new 
new intuition um, and more reliable, less harmful intuition is, is through that repetition and that hands-on training. And I don't know that it is you know, listening to a uh, HR pre-recording, though, you know, certainly we do need to approach it intellectually as well. But it's, it's also like, what can we do? How can we, how can we um, repeatedly expose people to different ideas and in ways that will actually change people's minds? Yeah, you're actually um, making me recall part of my conversation with David Dylan Thomas, who's the author of uh, Design for Cognitive Bias mm -hmm. and also ran the Cognitive Bias podcast. Sounds like you might know mm -hmm. David. Yeah, I, I, yeah. he wrote for a book apart, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did, he did. And I talked about this notion of teams doing an assumption audit. Mm -hmm. And that that is basically a, a methodical process for making clear what your biases are, you know, who's not in the room, and the impacts of those and just surfacing that so that it's not something that's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. And I asked him something about that to the effect of, do you worry that that just becomes a box ticking exercise? And his response was, and I'll just paraphrase him, was no. And even if it does through pure repetition, i.e. practice what we're talking about here, that actually becomes a really positive force for helping to change some of those biases and assumptions that we hold that might not necessarily be serving us particularly well. Yeah. So I just made that little link yeah. there between I, those conversations so and it just made so much sense. Yeah, it's so interesting you said checking boxes because you know there is a practice in operating rooms that's called the checklist and it is an essential safety procedure in order to prevent mistakes and save lives. And it really is as simple as they have a checklist of things they need to check for, things like is is the surgery like let's say you're doing a surgery to remove an arm or a leg right are you doing it on the left arm or the right arm let's double check 100%. right because it is the the number of wrong arms that have been amputated is not zero right my wife's an eye surgeon and she tells me they have to mark the eye they have to mark it yeah. it has to be marked and it has to be checked yeah. because yes people's eyes have been removed and it's the wrong, the eye, wrong eye and that's not a great outcome no. so you know the processes that get put in place to prevent those types of errors are checklists i i you know i i know there is a real and and important distinction for you know performative allyship and those sorts of things um, but at the same time to actually change outcomes you know sometimes it is as simple as a, as a checkbox you know and, and a checklist mm. wash your hands yes, right exactly. like we, we've all heard yes. about surgery performed before they wash yes. hands you know simple things and you know we talk about uh, intention over outcomes right uh, intention over impact and you know uh and how it's important to not overemphasize intention and focus also on the the impact and the outcomes of the behaviors right that we talk about that a lot in a um you know, inclusive diversity and equity spaces uh, that just because somebody didn't mean to, you know, say something harmful that, you know, if the outcome was that actual harm was done, that's still something that we should be prioritizing the outcome over the original intent. I mean, honestly, the, the reverse can be true, right? Right. Like even if their intent isn't to, you know, make real 
uh, change as long as the outcome is that change is made. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, next generation comes along and like, you know, we got a fresh start. And but if the, you know, if the outcome has been done and the changes is being made in the right direction, and I'm and I certainly am not advocating for skipping the hard work that needs to be done in that space. But you know, I think the important thing at the end of the day is that both, both is what we need right? It is not an either or. You both need the checklist and you need the hard conversations and the thought work and the work to be done. Um, that At the end of the day, that's where we want to end up. 100%. You know, when it comes to situations or design challenges where the stakes are high, like CPR, you know, like uh, being able to dial 911 when someone's having uh, an emergency that needs attention, it's quite easy or relatively easy to make the case for us to design for those specific scenarios, you know, in the industries and the situations where it's more readily apparent that it's needed. But how do we make this a real part of the everyday design of digital products and experiences that most of us who are listening to this podcast will be employed to do? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing that I would take if I were approaching this would simply be to think about all the things that can go wrong, right? Like where where are the moments where somebody can find out that something went wrong or that somebody's stress response is triggered? What are the moments they find out? They find out their account has been hacked. They find out their bank account has been cleared out. They find out that their bill that they thought was paid was not actually paid. Where are they when they find out that out? And then what what do they need to do next? Right? What what do what what is their instinct going to be to do next? Which I'll tell you, ninety nine percent of the time is to pick up the phone and try to talk to somebody. What is the actual best way to get the problem solved? Because you know, lots of times it's not to call. Lots of times you can actually resolve things faster and better through a digital interface, but you have to understand where they're going to be <laughs> and what their instincts are, you know, and where they're going to go next to find that in order to put something along their path to sort of catch them. Um, and then to give them real clear directions, right? When we are in panic mode, we don't want to think about complexity. We just want black and white choices. Uh, we want clear direction. You know, my CPR coach told me if you're ever in a, a, a situation where somebody falls to the ground, you don't just yell out, somebody call 911. You point to somebody and you say, you call 911, right? It's very directive. You tell them to do one thing, right? You, it's, a, it's a very singular path. And the same is, is true in a design setting, right? You figure out where they're going to be and what they're going to be looking for. And then you make a very singular path and, and then just take them down it with as few branches and complexities as possible to get them where they need to go. It sounds to me like instead of designing the happy path, we need to be designing the unhappy path. Yes, absolutely. That's a really good way to put it. The other thing that you may have spoke about with um, Ava designing uh, safety design, uh, she talks a lot about thinking about how might somebody abuse the system, right? Because that's the other big stressor that could come out of a system that you designed. How might somebody use the system that you designed to abuse someone else? Because that's a very stressful situation. And, you know, how can you capture that and get them the help that they need in order to stop that line of abuse? And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very similar sort of path, that, that unhappy path. Yeah, you got you to think about it. It's not pleasant to think about, but it's very important. And it gives you an opportunity to really be there for people in the moments that matter most. So it's a, it, it might not be 
fun to think about, but it can be very rewarding work and, and definitely worth the, the time and effort to do. Katie, you have put clearly an enormous amount of energy into exploring this topic at depth. I mean, you don't give the kind of talks that you give and you don't write a book <laughs> about something unless you've done that, right? What impact are you hoping that the book and your work in this area will have on the design community? You know, what do you really want people to do as a result of reading your book or listening to this episode, for example? One thing that I hope that comes out of this is a connection between different areas of design. You know, I looked a lot to areas uh, like, um, you know, healthcare design, um, avionics, the military, places where stress is incredibly well studied, uh, stress and design is incredibly well studied and found so many lessons in those areas that can be applied other places. I, I think there's incredible value with designers sharing between each other and, and connecting those dots. I also noticed that we are missing many voices in this area of study. Uh, this is a rough number just from my own research, but I would guess that 90% of the studies that are done on stress are done by militaries, you know, and especially, and, and a lot of our basics of what we understand about stress were done in between like the 1920s and 1970s or 80s, when the vast majority of science was being done by Western, largely white male, and the participants in those study were largely white men, usually young, because they're, because they are studying for, you know, they're doing the studies paid for by the military. And so they are, you know, using, you know, a, a typical soldier, model, right, for at least of that era mm -hmm. was was a young man. And it's very difficult because they don't really tell you in when they publish these studies, they don't tell you who what the like the, the demographic or even gender makeup of, of these participants are. I am not saying that the science isn't good, you know, or that there isn't things valuable information in there. It's just that we don't know. We don't know what's different. There is a growing area of study around the differences between male and female reactions to stress, but a, they, like it, it, it is so controversial <laughs> that I didn't even put any of it in my book because I didn't have the expertise necessary to be able to tell what was good science and what was propaganda. Um, and so I couldn't even do it. We just need more. We need more voices. We, we need diverse voices. We need people of all ages and abilities voices. We need them doing the research. We need them participating in the research. So just if more research is done in this area, uh, there's so much more to discover in this area. And I really hope that, you know, in order to really be creating human-centered products, we need research and knowledge about how humans behave. And we need to be really careful about who are the humans that we are designing for and make sure that that, that group is as large and inclusive and diverse as possible. Katie, what a great point to finish our conversation on. What a great conversation. I really do appreciate you going to such depth with me today about life and death design and how we as everyday designers can make that more of a part of our practice. So thank you for so generously sharing your insights with me. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for giving me a chance to dig in. 
Oh, you're most welcome anytime. Katie, if people want to find out more about you and about the book, Life and Death Design, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. I have a website, lifeanddeathdesign.com. Um, that's got my contact information, um, uh, information about the book. You can just buy the book, Life and Death Design by Katie Swindler on Amazon. So it's, it's easy to get. Uh, and I also tweet at Katie Swindler UX. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you, Katie. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Katie and uh, get a copy of her wonderful book and everything else that we've spoken about. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe, and also pass this conversation along to someone else in your network that you feel would get value from the depth that we've got to today. If you want to reach out to me, you can do that on LinkedIn. You can find me under Brendan Jarvis, or there's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes as well, or visit me on thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey!